How do Mexico and Argentina relate to the American Civil War? I'm Chris Mikowski, and today on the Emerging Civil War podcast, we'll talk with historian Evan Rothera about his new book, Civil Wars and Reconstructions in the Americas, today on the Emerging Civil War podcast. The latest volume in the Emerging Civil War 10th Anniversary series is now available, Civil War Monuments and Memory, co-edited by John Tracy and myself, Chris Mikowski. We've got a ton of essays that look at not only monument controversies, what monuments are in general, specific monuments with cool stories, questions the monuments pose for us, but also some cool stories about Civil War memory, which help us understand how monuments function as historical memory. It's the latest in our series of hardcovers that kicked off with the summer of 63 Gettysburg and the summer of 63 Vicksburg. We have Grant and Lee, and now we have Civil War Monuments and Memories. At the printer now, we've got the Civil War on the Water, which is about the Navy, and we've got a collection on fallen leaders and more to come. The Emerging Civil War 10th Anniversary Series, published by Savas Beatty. You can order your copies at www.savasbeatty.com. Welcome to the Emerging Civil War Podcast. I'm Chris Mikowski, and joining me from Arkansas is my friend Evan Rothera. Evan, how are you this evening? Very well. Thank you, Chris. Excellent. Now, folks with ECW might not realize, but Evan does a a little bit of workforce behind the scenes, doing some editorial capacities and stuff. He's an assistant professor at the University of Arkansas at Fort Smith, and he's got a brand new book out, and I want to talk to him about it. Uh, So congratulations, first of all, Evan. Well, thank you very much, and and thank you for talking to me. I always uh, like the chance to talk to people about the book. Always a pleasure. So uh, so the book is called Civil Wars and Reconstructions in America. I'll hold it up here and we'll see if it pops in or out here. Oh, see, there it goes. <laughs> I'll make sure we have notes in the comments. Um, but this talks about the Civil War in a broader global perspective that I think is really um, fascinating because when most people think about the Civil War in a global perspective, they're thinking about British and, and French intervention. And instead, you're looking at the Southern Hemisphere. Um, tell us a little bit about the context of this fascinating book. I, absolutely. So you're absolutely right, Chris. I mean, when people think about the international nature of the Civil War and Jack Green and Philip Morgan talked about this problem for Atlantic history more generally. They think in terms of east-west lines. So we look at the United States, Britain, France, you know, maybe some other countries in Europe. But what I do is try and look at the north-south lines. So I think the first thing to say is, you know, we know kind of when our civil war is, 1861 to 1865 in this country. But what we often forget about is You know, there are a lot of other republics in the Americas who were going through their own growing pains, growth struggles, and they faced similar and and I, as I argue, intertwined conflicts. So a couple years um, before our civil war begins in Mexico, a group of liberals come to power. They overthrow Antonio Lopez de Santana. This is the um, people like Benito Juarez, uh, Juan Alvarez. You know, they write a new constitution. This generates a conflict called the War of the Reform, which pits Mexican liberals against Mexican conservatives. 
that war is finishing about the same time our civil war kicks off. But then Mexico's case becomes more complicated because Napoleon III, then the emperor of France, gets involved. He starts colluding with Mexican conservatives. They try and place an Austrian archduke on the throne of a new Mexican empire. And that's what we call the French intervention. And that lasts until 1867. Now, at the other end of the hemisphere, Argentina, right, their conflict had really begun about the same time that they broke away from Spain. And it had pitted um, Unitarios against Federales, so Unitarians against Federalists. Um, this had been going on for decades. Uh, but these wars of unifications wrap up literally just um, a very short period of time before the Civil War starts in the United States, while the War of the Reform is winding down in Mexico. And you could look at other countries in the Americas and say, well, there are other civil wars happening too. And, and that's certainly true. But, you know, it's one book and you can't do everything. So <laughs> one of the... Um, points that some people made comparative studies are often two countries or two things or two regions two states whatever the case may be um my study looks at three so that it becomes sort of more broad than a book on the u.s mexico and i try to rope in the entire hemisphere and so thinking about these interrelated struggles and we can talk more about this but one of the points I've found is that, you know, it's not just that there's discrete civil wars and discrete conflicts occurring throughout the hemisphere. It's that people saw the projects they were these wars as interrelated. Um, and so the liberals in Mexico, the Unitarians in Argentina, Republicans in the United States, they started to conceptualize themselves as a great liberal party of the world. And more than that, what they said is, you know, these civil wars are so tremendously important because they pit democracy and republicanism on the one side against various forces of reaction, whether that's monarchy, aristocracy, autocracy of some kind. And it's easy for us to lose sight of this fact, but it's important to remember, you know, today, democracy is almost a default mode of governance in the world. You know, as people have said, even dictators sometimes see the use in, in wrapping themselves in democratic forms. But back then, it was not the default, right? The Americas were the exception, you know, the, that was the locus of democracy and republicanism, that, the, the entire hemisphere, you know, and there are a lot of people throughout the world that desperately wanted to see these republican experiments fail, and a lot of other people that wanted to see them succeed, you know, so you see this fascinating cooperation, but well, I can develop any of these points. But I'll <laughs> and we're going to. Um, I want to back up to something you said a second ago, which I think may make some of our listeners' heads spin because you use the phrase Republicans saw themselves as a great liberal party. Um, mm -hmm. And in our modern parlance, Republicans and liberals don't necessarily go together. So let's take a second and sort of define our terms. And, um, you know, as you talk about these forces of reactionism, mm -hmm. uh, reactionaryism, um, conservatism, liberalism, unification. Um, who's who and how does this all kind of fit together in a larger scheme of political thought? That's a very good question. So liberals in Mexico, Unitarians in Argentina, Republicans in the United States, they're classic liberals. And it's not, you know, they're classically liberal. Um, and that and means, also, you know, in, in your book, that means what? Oh, okay. That's a good question. Yeah. Um, well, they favor, you know, different types of individual liberty. Um, in Mexico and in uh, Argentina, a little bit less, you see a really pronounced church question. And one of the things Mexican liberals are trying to do is secularize the country, right? They want to reduce the power of the Catholic church, you know, 
Um, so that involved taking a lot of education um, out of the hands of priests, you know, taking power out of the hands of priests. Um, you know, they want to reduce the power of certain what they see as reactionary groups in society. Um, but a lot of these liberals are very interested in questions of national development, too. You know, they're very much they're all almost obsessed with internal improvement. So in the tradition of the Whig Party in the United States and the Federalists, um, even some Democrats, too, you know, they want to develop their railroad grids. They want to develop canals. They want to develop the internal infrastructure. There's a darker side, too, because all these groups are also interested, and I don't develop this at great length in the book, but other scholars have, at kind of um, reducing the power of indigenous groups in their countries. And they do kind of take notes from each other in that regard. So they're interested, excuse me, you know, in a lot of, um, in Mexico's case in particular, it's about a lot of secularization you know, reducing the power of the church, what they see as reactionary groupings, developing the country, um, tying each other together, increasing access to markets, things like that. Oh, very good. And so, uh, you know, as you kind of situate that in, in the unification in Argentina, where there's this coming together of individual entities, and I see that a lot like the notion of the union, which takes precedent over the individual states. Um, am I on the right track there? Mm -hmm. Yes, okay. very much so. And, uh, you know, a lot of the debates that we would talk about in the United States during the early Republic crop up in these countries as well. So, you know, how much power should the federal government have relative to the states? And a lot of liberals, they are in Mexico, they're extreme federalists, which means they are the guys who came, you know, sort of of age during the crucible of uh, Santana's centralization, where all power was, you know, lodged at the center. They don't want that. They want very powerful states. You know, now once they get into power at the federal level, they discover maybe not quite so federalist, you know, but in Argentina, it's the same question, you know, how much power in Argentina has provinces, not state, how, how much power should provinces have relative to the state governments? And, you know, you see that question in the U.S. too. And we often talk about this notion of state rights, you know, how how federalist do we want the states to be? And Republicans and Democrats in the 1850s and 1860s and, and before you know, they don't always make it easy to try and say, well, one party was very federalist and one wasn't, um, because it really depends on what issue you're talking about specifically, you know. So you do see a lot of similarities. Um, and you do see people who are not just looking inward. And I think that's an important point, right? Um, the historian Robert Weeby once said, one of the great transformations of the post-Civil War U.S. was that what he called island communities started fracturing. And, you know, he said when that happened, people started to gain a greater sense of the world. But I think what transnational history shows us is that, especially in the early republic, during the Civil War, people had that understanding. They were self-consciously thinking about themselves alongside other people. They were, at well as we'll see, I mean, actually participating in other conflicts, you know. So I'm not sure it's so much island communities as, you know, people have a more robust sense of well, world affairs than even we do today. And our world's in some ways far more connected because of technology. Yeah, that, that thought that, that these three conflicts are related and they're part of a broader global struggle, um, I think would be illuminating to a lot of people, which is one, one reason why I think the book is so fascinating. This uh, whole different way of, of situating what's going on in America, which we have always tended to see as North versus South, as something mm -hmm. that's really part of this, this larger global sweep that's going on. It is. And as with so many things, Lincoln helps us kind of understand in some ways, 
when he debates Stephen Arnold Douglas for the Senate in 1858, at one point, it's at all, he's very eloquent. He said, there's a great issue in this debate, and it's one that's been going on for a while, and it'll go on long after the poor tongues of Judge Douglas and myself have fallen silent. And what he boils it down to is, you know, the divine right of kings versus the common right of humanity. You know, so he taps into this larger idea, and that's what people at the time are doing too. You know, they, and again, in Lincoln's phrase from his message to Congress in 1862, he talks about the Civil War as the last best hope of Earth. You know, and what he means is there's a lot riding on this conflict for a number of reasons, not least of which many people, and he would say in Europe, um, look to the United States. You know, the revolutions in 1848 that failed, you have a lot of people still inspired by that. They want to see the U.S. succeed because they want republicanism to show that it can weather this kind of conflict. And what I would say is, you know, if we tweak Lincoln's thought a little bit, it's not that our conflict or Mexico's or Argentina's was the last best hope of Earth. It's that they're all last best hopes of Earth in their own right. They're all linked, excuse me, linked together almost inextricably. Yeah. Another term that you use that I uh, kind of chuckled at is you refer to the so-called Confederacy. Um, <laughs> tell me about your framing of that. That's fair. That's Lincoln's framing, um, which I follow. So what Lincoln would say is, well, the Confederacy as a nation never truly existed. He always saw the Civil War, and it's purely an internal rebellion. Um, and in fact, U.S. diplomats, Lincoln got pretty irritated with Britain when it looked like they were flirting with recognizing the Confederacy, when the Queen's you know, proclamation may have given the Confederates belligerent status. Um, and then people get really tweaked when Gladstone, who was then Chancellor of the Exchequer, I think, said, you know, Jefferson Davis is building armies, build a navy. It looks like he's building a nation too. People are are quite upset about that. So I kind of again follow Lincoln. Um, I don't necessarily see the Confederacy as a nation, um, just casting it in terms of an internal rebellion, which you know, and you see this throughout the Americas is often how um, people cast these type of rebellions. And I think that that's important context then compared to what's going on in Mexico and Argentina in your book, where you've got internal strife versus country versus country. And I think that that makes those parallels um, a lot more instructive for us, particularly then when we do have foreign intervention that that pops its way into Mexico. Absolutely. And that's a great point, you know, and we have these internal struggles and and in Mexico's is fascinating too. I mean, people didn't, you know, they didn't even have to work to make it fit the model they created um, because you had a French emperor with an Austrian archduke and a bunch of, you know, foreign European soldiers who were colluding with Mexican conservatives to try and topple a legitimately elected government and put, you know, literally a European aristocrat on the throne of a new Mexican empire. Um, But Mexico is also the place where you see the most explicit foreign intervention. I mean, as much as Britain may have played footsies with the Confederacy, you know, they never crossed that line. And and of course, Napoleon wasn't going to move in the United States unless he was darn sure that Britain was going to, you know. But the interesting thing, too, and other historians have developed this, Europe, I say Europe generally, but um, Spain, France, Britain to a lesser extent, they really do take advantage of the United States falling into civil war to try and muscle their way back into the Americas. So Ann Heller talks about, you know, how uh, Spain tried to reconquer the Dominican Republic. Um, There's the War of the Pacific. You know, there are other examples, too, of Europe basically saying, well, 
we think the United States is distracted enough that we can probably get away with this, but it's also instructive too, you know, once our civil war ends, I mean, then the, the question that a lot of people in the country faces, well, what do we want to do? And they think specifically about France and Mexico, but Spain kind of runs out of the Dominican Republic pretty quickly. You know, it's not to say that the U.S. is the only actor here. I mean, obviously, Mexicans and Dominicans played a huge role in, in repelling what happened here. But um, once our civil war ends, you know, Europe has to confront a new situation. So. Yeah, yeah I, I thought it was rather interesting that Spain goes into the Dominican Republic when the U.S. isn't looking and the Dominicans managed to drive them out. But it's it's almost like. You know, we're going to pick this fight while Big Brother's not looking. And oh, wait, Big Brother's looking all of a sudden. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And so one of the fascinating points here, too, we think, well, this is all covered sort of under the umbrella of the Monroe Doctrine. But during this period, I mean, how many European powers respect it? And um, for anybody that needs a quick refresher, you know, this was the 1820s when the Monroe Doctrine was issued. It was basically a statement written by John Quincy Adams, but then folded into President Monroe's um, annual message saying, look, European systems of government are incompatible with ours. This is sort of the close to the end of the Spanish-American Revolution. So we see this new bumper crop of republics. And the fear is Europe will try and pounce on them, especially the, the Holy Alliance. So Monroe said, well, we want you to stay out of our hemisphere, you know, and it's a unilateral declaration. But one of the things I trace in the book is how especially Mexicans seize on the Monroe Doctrine, you know, and they craft this language of sister republics, which had existed in the 1820s, but had fallen into disuse. And there's numerous examples of Mexicans saying, hey, sister republic shouldn't be sitting idle while, you know, this happens. And, and people in the U.S. really re respond to that. You know, there's this very strong um, concerted push to do something to help Mexico and it varied by person what that meant. But, you know, so you really see kind of an evolution of the Monroe Doctrine in a pretty important way during this period. So for listeners who maybe know Mexico as Napoleon the third and Maximilian and something might have happened. Give us a little refresher. Why is the, the conflict in Mexico? What is the conflict in Mexico and why is it important to the United States at this period? Okay. And then we'll we'll shift gears and I'll I'll pitch that same question to you about Argentina, um, which I think people probably know less about. But let's look at Mexico for just a second. Yes, I have a feeling you're right about it. It's what I've <laughs> what I have found. So Mexico, like I said, um I think if you want to understand Mexican history, you know, you need to know something about Antonio Lopez de Santana. And we think of him, you know, the, the great dictator, right? He's widely reviled among Mexicans. He loses Texas, you know, he then bungles badly during the U.S. war with Mexico. During the early 1850s, it's one of his many periods of, well, he left, then he came back. He entered into what was his most overt dictatorship. And so this lasted only a couple of years, but it generated this fierce opposition among, again, this burgeoning group of liberals who are mostly federalists, who despise his centralism. So he's actually defeated and, and pretty much ushered out of the country very quickly. And then, like I said, liberals, they write the Constitution of 1857. That sparks the War of the Reform. So at its heart, right, that conflict is a question about what, what should Mexico look like, you know? And for liberals, like I was saying, we need a more you know, more secular powers in the state. We don't want the church in charge of education. We want to secularize marriage, right? So they're trying to cut down the church's power. They're trying to cut down the army's power, right? They want to reduce those privileges. But of course, you can imagine, especially among the church and the army, there's some pretty 
you know, fervent pushback. But liberals also try and break up communal land holdings in indigenous populations. So the people who are fighting against them are not just, you know, disaffected army officers and angry priests who've lost their signatures. A lot of indigenous people, you know, they don't see liberalism as offering much for them. So it is a civil war. Um, and you can say, well, the liberals are an emerging middle class, but they both sides pull from sort of all levels of society. And the war the reform ends with Mexican conservatives being defeated. Benito Juarez is back in power in Mexico City. But, you know, it's been a pretty costly war. The Mexican treasury is in shambles. So what Juarez says is we have to suspend payments on our foreign debts. And this is where Napoleon starts to get some schemes. So he and Britain and Spain, they initially intervene in Mexico, right? And they seize the Veracruz customs house. They start using that customs revenue to service their debt. And Spain and Britain really just wanted to be paid. France, on the other hand, that's when Napoleon starts thinking, well, why don't we just take more than customs revenue? So they land men, they start marching overland, right? They get to Puebla. There they encounter kind of a smaller ragtag army led by a lawyer turned general named Ignacio Zaragoza. If you were betting during that period, right, France, this is not that long after Napoleon, you know, the actual original Napoleon, not his nephew. Um, France is still regarded as one of the preeminent military powers. So they, everybody thought, well, they just steamroll over Mexico. But they lose at the Battle of Puebla. And that's what's commemorated in today's Cinco de Mayo or the 5th of May. Now, this is important for the United States, some scholars have said, because it basically keeps the French out of Mexico City for another year, right? If they had gotten there sooner, then all of a sudden the war in the Southwest, our civil war, Texas, the borderlands, that then becomes a much more open question about, well, what if France and the imperialists actually decided to get involved up in there? And, you know, how does that go? It's counterfactual, we don't know, but it's an interesting question. So, you know, there's, again, this concerted liberal resistance. They're eventually driven out of Mexico City. So Juarez and his government, they retreat well into the north. There's some fascinating um, kind of points of overlap between them and, and U.S. forces. So all this matters, right? Because at its heart, what Napoleon has done here is it's it's a flagrant violation of the Monroe Doctrine. And it's basically, I mean, it gives the back of his hand to the U.S. and he says, what are you going to do, right? You're tearing yourself apart in a civil war. He gambles that they won't do anything, and he gambles that he can win in Mexico. What he did not predict is a couple things. A, this fervent Mexican resistance that leads Maximilian to eventually issue something called the Black Decree, which any liberal or person seized in arms would be executed within 24 hours. Um, Napoleon obviously didn't foresee the North winning. He thought the Confederacy, you know, he was betting his horse on that one. That didn't work out. So eventually that ends. But why this is so important kind of for the United States and for Mexico, again, people see these two conflicts as interrelated, but the U.S. has to think practically, supposing, you know, well, two outcomes. If we, the Civil War winds down in favor of the North and Napoleon is still in Mexico, that completely screws up the geopolitics of the Americas. And Grant says to Andrew Johnson, our Civil War does not end while the French are still in Mexico, right? Yeah. He's very explicit about that point. But then somebody said, well, what if the Civil War had ended with Confederate independence? Then you have an even more 
possibly odd situation in the Americas. I mean, how would the Confederates have dealt with the French in Mexico, vice versa? What would have happened in the North? You know, you could, somebody said, you could see the U.S. splitting into five or six different nations. The Pacific Coast flakes off, the Midwest leaves, there goes New England, you know, who knows? But it's so important because of the possibilities it presents. And again, I would say, because people saw the interrelated nature of these conflicts, um, and they really did see themselves as as sister republics fighting the forces of reaction, you know. And and what it also suggests is that maybe scholars have over, not overemphasized, but overplayed the extent of anti-Latin Americanism during this period. Right? There's far more, I would say, cooperation and far more willingness to work with people. Now, uh, one quick question before we we shift to Argentina. Um, how much credence do you give those, you know, again, if I'm checking down the few things most people know about Mexico during the American Civil War, it's like, oh, there was the the overtures where the Confederacy and the Union would get together and kick Maximilian out. Um, how much credence do you give to any of that? It's a very good question. And I mean, the most famous example is our favorite old Jacksonian, Francis Preston Blair Sr., he, he makes a trip to Richmond and he tries to convince Jefferson Davis that, well, you know, you can take your entire army, go to Mexico, expel the French, you'll be a hero, and Mexico will be the safety valve to bleed off angry rebels who don't want to, well, you know. So that does happen. Um, Blair, it's lesser known, but then a couple of weeks later, he says to Lincoln, what if we got Garibaldi in here to command the Mexican armies, which, is, you know, who knew? It's fascinating. Um, what I think is instructive is that there was this expectation among a lot of soldiers north and south that this might actually happen, you know. Um, so I don't think the likelihood of the U.S. sending, you know, it not demobilizing the army, but sending the entire thing down to the borderlands is highly unlikely. But Grant did send Sheridan and 50,000 soldiers to Texas, ostensibly to patrol the borders, but really it was to tell the imperialists and the French, hey, you put one toe out of line and, well, Phil ran havoc in the Shenandoah Valley. You want to come down and, you know, teaching you the same lessons? Um, so, like, it's a great question. And a lot of people did want to see it happen, which I think is kind of instructive in a way, too, that you had this widespread sentiment that we should, you know, the United States should do something. And, um, of course, the problem for Lincoln is, well, you know, we don't want to call an armistice and not solve the Civil War and just send both armies down to Mexico. It wasn't practical so far as he saw it. Um what would Lincoln have done if he had lived is a good question. Andrew Johnson, we think, usually gets locked into the focusing on the domestic side of Reconstruction. But, you know, he's not enforcing the Neutrality Acts. He's allowing people to cross the border. He's allowing Mexicans to recruit. He locks down the border into Canada, right? So he'll prosecute the Finians, Irish nationalists who tried to raise rebellion in Canada. But he's not interested in stopping that on the southern border, which, again, suggests that a lot of people you know, had a vested interest in making this happen. There was unruly Canadians. Oh, heavens. <laughs> um, so let's, let's shift to the Southern Hemisphere in Argentina, which I find fascinating. That was the part about your book I found most interesting because it's the piece I knew the least about. And mm -hmm. there's a lot going on down there. Um, give us the quick Cliffs Notes version. 
Well, I'll do my best. Eh? <laughs> yeah, I'll do best. <laughs> I mean, it took you a whole book to explain. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> In one concise paragraph. So basically, like I said, Argentina's problem grows out of the wars of unification. And there's another, there's a dictatorial figure in Argentina too, Juan Manuel de Rosas, who was a longtime governor of Buenos Aires. And what he did is he created alliances with regional strongmen whom we call Calillos, right? Um, so there's this discontented, you know, anti-Caudillo resistance, men like Domingo F. Sarmiento. This drags on, you know, for decades. In 1852, he's defeated at the Battle of Caseros, right, by, um, well, a group of they're really a polyglot army. There's Brazilians, there's people from um, Uruguay, there's exiles that came back, you know, they throw them out of power. But then the problem for a lot of people is the leader of this group, Jose, uh, Justo Jose de Urquiza, he almost seems to them like a new dictatorial figure. So the problem then for about another decade is, well, how does Buenos Aires fit into this Argentine confederation? And there's several battles fought over that. And then in 1861, at the Battle of Pavón, um, the question is answered, you know, they defeat the forces of the Confederation and, and a new republic is formed. So Argentina, it's a much longer time frame in some ways um, than the other two countries. And what it shows is, you know, well, ironically, Argentina is one of the earliest uh, countries to produce a declaration of independence, break away from Spain, and yet it has this lengthy, excuse me, war of unification again, fought about some of the issues we've talked about earlier. And it's the same sort of questions that come up in the United States. Again, what power does the federal government have relative to, in this case, the provincial governments? You know, how should the federal government pacify discontented people in the interior? You know, so they, um, their struggle ends while the U.S. Civil War is just about to begin. And so what I try to do in the book is show you know, especially in the early pacification period, I mean, they're doing sort of a lot of the same things you see there, they're coming across the same questions. And again, people like Sarmiento and Mitre see themselves as very much, um, you know, moving along the same paths, fighting the same battles, engaged in the same kind of struggles, and, and you know, trying to answer the same questions as people in the United States. You uh, start the book really kind of in, in the... Um beginning of 1863 and, and Lincoln's had a rough time of it. Mm -hmm. uh, Juarez has had a, a tough time of Mexico. And then apparently things seem to be kind of settling into some sort of rhythm in Argentina and Lincoln gets this letter. Um, and, and that sort of is the opening move for you to begin discussing all of these things. Why did you choose that particular moment um, as a moment to shed some light on how all these things interrelate? It's an interesting question. I liked it. It's a nice, vivid anecdote. So Lincoln does get a letter from Bartolome Mitre. He sends one back, you know, it's a congratulations basically on being elected president, on Argentina wrapping up its war. And what I thought is, well, you know, we could start with just Lincoln and Juarez. But again, one of the points of the book is what happens when we, you know, broaden a comparative study beyond two countries. So you do have Argentina at kind of a different moment in here. And I think for me, the interesting thing is, you know, as you mentioned, as I say in the book, I mean, at that point, things are going badly for the North. I mean, Lincoln and his party have just been, let's say, trounced in the 1862 midterms. I mean, Antietam, yes, it was a tactical victory. Yes, um, it lets him issue the Emancipation Proclamation, but he was furious because he thought McClellan could have you know, won that Napoleonic victory against Lee. 
Then we have Fredericksburg, which is, is a disaster. Bragg invades Kentucky. Yes, he's repelled, but it's still, you know, causes a lot of problems in people's mind. Stones River, very narrow victory, right? So, you know, he's not in a good place militarily. He's not in a good place politically. Juarez, by this point, you know, knows that the French are coming back. He's going to be leaving Mexico City in a couple months. So neither country is doing well in their respective conflicts. But here we have another part of the Americas where the third country is. So I thought kind of starting from that point and then using that letter as a way to tie them together, you know, um, serve some of the larger points I was trying to make in the book. There's also a, a really interesting point that you make, you know, as we're talking about these forces of liberalism versus reactionarism and authoritarianism, and Joe Hooker pops up in, in a way that kind of symbolizes some of these global uh, tides in a person that Lincoln has to deal with in a very direct sort of way. Um, tell me about Joe Hooker's role kind of as a symbol in this book. I will. So for some of your um you know, listeners, readers may know, but what is Hooker's role at this point? Well, the Army of the Potomac is not in a particularly great shape, right? They've been mauled a couple of times. I mean, Lincoln calls Pope from the West. Uh, he, of course, issues the kind of proclamation you never want to issue, right? I come to you from the West where we've only seen the backs of our enemies, and then Second Bull Run happens. Um, you know, the, the Fitzjohn Porter question. Uh, Antietam, you know, you can say it's a victory, but a lot of people felt it was a missed opportunity. Fredericksburg, of course, they say it was a mismanaged disaster. There's the mud march where Burnside tries to take them south, and that ends in just mockery and humiliation. So the army's not doing so well. So what Lincoln has to do is find someone who can try and, well, rebuild, reforge the army, reinstill that esprit de corps. And he finally settles on Hooker, which is a bit of a controversial choice. Someone said Hooker's headquarters were a combination of barroom and brothel. So he had that hard drinking, hard living reputation. But Hooker had engaged in some dangerously loose talk about a dictatorship, right? That the military should take charge of things, put a dictator in and fix the problem. And of course, you know, two guesses about who Joe Hooker thought that dictator might be. And so Lincoln faces, you know, a challenge where, the guy he thinks is probably the best one for the job has been talking about overthrowing the government and putting a dictator in power. So he writes this letter to Hooker, basically saying to the effect, you know, I've heard you were talking about dictatorships, only successful generals can create dictatorships. So bring me the successes and I'll worry about the dictatorship. Um, but the point I make there is it's kind of a funny story from our perspective, especially because, you know, we know Hooker's wouldn't have been successful enough to bring off a dictatorship and, and Chancellorsville, of course, is going to reveal his limits. But there's other places in the Americas that had a very profound, very unpleasant experience with dictatorship, Mexico among them, right? A lot of this was reaction against Santana. And so Lincoln is trying to disarm Hooker, but if he cast his eyes about the Americas, I mean, he would see this is something more than just dangerously loose talk. You know, there's an impulse here that has been brought to, to fruit in other places. And I mean, Mark Neely made this point a long time ago. You know, when you look at the soldiers in their winter encampments during that period, uh, this is when the Democrats had taken control of legislatures in Illinois and Indiana. And Neely found regiment after regiment just sending resolutions to Richard Yates in Illinois, the governor, and Governor Morton in Indiana saying, just give us the word. 
we'll come up there and we'll clean the legislature out right <laughs> i mean this is you know pride's purge from the english civil war except on steroids and now that never went anywhere but the point i'm making is you know there's a lot of stuff like that burbling beneath the surface and sometimes it can seem just sort of random if we look at it from a strictly you know sort of domestic perspective but when you put that into a larger international context you see again the u.s is facing the same kind of problems and conundrums that other countries are yeah. and we've been talking about the armed conflicts here and and sort of their context with each other um when things start to quiet down um on the battlefields in america and then and then in mexico uh, we get into a lot of political turmoil that is in many ways um, even more tumultuous than what was happening on the battlefield, at least from a nation building point of view. How do things start to shake out for these three countries as they sort of try to navigate their own post-war existences? It's a great question. And, you know, one of the points we often hear is, well, our reconstruction is so fill in the word, mild, lenient, harsh, you know, whatever school you're reading. And the question for us should always be, well, how did you come to that Kind of impression, you know, harsh, mild, lenient relative to what precisely. So one of the things I try and illustrate in the book is, all right, we have these civil wars. Mexico's is the latest. It's ended by 1867. The French have been expelled. The Austrians are gone. Maximilian is executed uh, at Queretaro. What happens then, you know? And each country faces the same problem. How do we knit society back together, but ultimately in a way to stop something like this, this kind of destructive conflict from ever happening again. And so you see, right, in the early years, there's the pacification. Um, and I describe that for Argentina, you see occupations of various kinds. But what you also see, I would say, are the growing seeds of discontent that have been planted, right? And they're going to flower in various ways, whether that's sort of small scale, decentralized, what would look like random violence if you took one instance, but you know, you start to see more and more of it to the paramilitary violence, things like overthrowing legislatures. And so what I try to do is put the three countries up against each other and say, well, if we look at kind of these three periods, you know, the early years of reconstruction, then basically Grant's first term, and then you know, Grant's second term through 1880, what what conclusions can we draw? And what I found is you know, generally in terms of um, in the early years, Argentina seems to be the best in terms of suppressing the violence and the insurgency, right? When you get into that period of Grant's first term, I mean, my conclusion is that governments do still maintain a monopoly on coercive force, that they can put down these violent episodes, right? So if there are rebellions, if there's violence, if there's paramilitary terrorism like the Klan, the government can intervene to stop it. The problem comes for the United States in particular with the panic and economic panic in 1873. All of a sudden, it's bad times. Republicans, the party in power, so they get punished. There's less and less political will to stop things, right? And in Mexico, you start to see, again, some of the similar problems. I would say Argentina is consistently the best about these types of pacifications, Um the problem, you know, especially for the United States and Mexico, is well, as time endures and endures, you got people that want to move on. You don't have the political will to do this. So 1876, the Republican Rutherford B. Hayes wins by one electoral vote. There's also an election in Mexico that sparks yet another rebellion by Porfirio Diaz when he seems to lose. He ends up basically overthrowing the duly elected government and seizing power through the pronunciamiento. 
Hayes wins the presidency, but by that point, the Republicans have made, you know, a Faustian bargain. We'll let the elite, Southern elite, take care of your states. Just, you know, we got to stop. They see Reconstruction as a superating wound at this point, and they've got to find new issues. Um, and in Argentina, you know, there's a presidential election in 1874 that results in rebellion. It's suppressed. Um, the people who are involved in it are generally amnestied or punished very lightly. But again, I would say the government has, you know, the ability to do that because they've been the most aggressive about suppressing that kind of thing. So my ultimate conclusion is when you look at these violent episodes, by 1880, each of the three countries has found itself on a similar path to a type of order, right? And this order usually involves disfranchising large sectors of the population. So in the U.S., that's going to be Jim Crow in the South, obviously, although Jim Crow is not just a Southern phenomenon, as we know. Um, in Argentina, that's going to be the rise of something called El Orden Conservador, or the conservative order, which is basically an oligarchy that will run the country until, um, well, 1916. And then in Mexico, it's the start of something called the Porfiriato, which is Porfirio Diaz being president almost continuously through the early years of the Mexican Revolution. So kind of what I say is the, the bargain people end up making is that we want order, we want stability, and they're willing to give up, as it turns out, quite a lot to achieve that, you know. Now, uh, and I'll oversimplify this, but I also have always thought that, uh, you know, one reason for Reconstruction's failure, too, is America is fascinated by the shiny, glittery thing that is the West, and sort of our attention gets drawn to the taming of the West. Um, and so like, let's not pay attention to that, you know, hard, complicated Reconstruction stuff going on. We've got shiny new. Um do do Mexico or Argentina have any of those sort of similar dynamics, or is that something that's kind of unique to us? I would say there are there's some similar dynamics. Um, if you cast it in terms of sort of government action against indigenous people, as in Argentina, you know, there were campaigns earlier in the century about the, the tail end of the period I look at is the start of something called La Conquista del Desierto or the conquest of the desert. And that does involve um, prolonged government fighting against indigenous peoples, not unlike the winning of our own West, so to speak. Mexico, in turn, is also waging some struggles against indigenous people. And, and what they would say is, um, you know, sort of banditry and lawlessness more generally. So you can, I think, see some analogs in each of the three countries. And like I said, there's some, you know, someone could say more about comparative indigenous policy, for instance. Right. Um, so you do see that. I think your broader point too, people getting distracted from reconstruction or reconstructions in each of the three countries is, is a good one. You know, and ultimately, whether it's distraction, whether they got sick of it, whether they wanted to move on to something else, whether they got tired of it, you know, it all combines to how just cause a lot of people to say, you know, we're done with it. Yeah. Um, we want to basically move on. And that's why you know, or the order and stability become so seductive because, you know, the reconstruction years did feature a lot of disorder and instability caused by angry members of the, the vanquished groups, you know, who are trying to destabilize their reconstructions and roll the clock back to a point where they're back in charge. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. My sense was that it's not necessarily a very happy ending to your story. I mean, not that you're, you know, storytelling in a traditional sort of sense, but, you know, going back to your phrase earlier about this Faustian bargain and, you know, that's how we kind of come to come through these reconstructions is, is by making those sorts of devil's deals. It is. It's a sad thing. It is not. No, the last chapter of the book does not end happy. Now, my initial epilogue was somewhat darker in tone. So I did revise oh boy. it. <laughs> what I tried to say there is, you know, yes, we have this situation, these civil wars are interrelated, right? By the 1880s, each country's on a similar path to order, but what kind of larger lessons can we extract from this? And one of my points is it shows us, you know, that a lot of people at the time rejected isolationism, rejected kind of either anti-Latin Americanism or anti-U.S. sentiment, saw themselves as engaged in shared projects, privileged cooperation. So we do have some important lessons that we can draw from this. And, you know, as somebody said, history doesn't have to be inspiring to be instructive, but I think you can see a little bit of, maybe more than a little bit of both um, sort of throughout the book, you know. So yes, the chapter where I basically end with the elections of 1880. No, if you stop there, it wouldn't be a very happy feeling. But I think if you continue through the epilogue, you know, you hopefully come out of it on a slightly more positive note. <laughs> so let me, uh, and this is sort of backing us way, way up. So what got you interested in this topic in the first place? You know, that's uh, a long story. Um, I'll try to condense it. When I was an undergrad at Gettysburg, I double majored in history and Spanish. And one of the requirements was spend a semester abroad. So I went to Mendoza in Argentina and was taking an Argentine social history class, among others, at um, the Universidad Nacional de Cuyo. And I came across just a very brief mention, and I can't even tell you what I was reading at that point. They mentioned, and then Domingo Sarmiento wrote a biography of Abraham Lincoln. And I said, <laughs> what? What was that? So I started looking into this and I wondered, well, I know a little bit about Sarmiento, but never heard of this. When did he write it? And it was 1865. I'm like, okay, well, that seems to be kind of interesting. So why did he write this biography? And that was my initial end of the subject. So the early design of this project was that it would be comparative U.S. and Argentina. But as I was getting more and more into my program at Penn State, uh, Bill Blair said, you, know, you should really add Mexico. And it, it complicated things, but he was right. I mean, it, it works better as a three-country study. So basically, this stretches back to 2008 when I was in Argentina and kind of that started a fascination there. And I addressed Sarmiento, obviously, a lot in this book. And I wrote um, a chapter about him for David Pryor's book on international reconstructions and so I've been fascinated with him for a while. Um, and, you know, among other things, he is rushing to get this biography out. And as Robert May and others have said, I mean, this kind of sets, well, a lot of Latin American perceptions about Lincoln for several generations. So it's a tremendously influential, but often overlooked book. Um, and so I feel like I'll return to that at some point in the future as well. So that's where the initial interest came from. And you know, it evolved and grew over time as I did the research. Um, yeah. Uh, I got to tell you, you know, I, I hear this a lot and I'm sure you do too. Like, what else is there to write about the Civil War? Oh my and, and this is a book that was illuminating to me. Here's something new to say about the Civil War. Um, I really appreciated it because I took away stuff that that um, really opened my eyes about that, that larger context. So I, I congratulate you on that. Well, thank you. 
And yes, you're right. You've heard it 10 gajillion times. And I'm sure people, what more can we write about the Civil War? What more can we write about Lincoln? Well, as it turns out, quite a lot, you know. <laughs> and that's what I tell students. There's still a heck of a lot to be said and, and stuff that needs to be said. So you should, um, well, my advice is, you know, always to write about what you want to write about. But, you know, know that, yeah, there's a lot that's been written about the Civil War, sure, but there's still more to be said. So yeah. thank you for that. Though. Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. So is there anything I haven't asked you that I should have tonight? Oh, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Is there... right. So it'll Look be like 2 a.m. and you'll be like, oh, I should. Yeah, that's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure when we're done, I'll think, oh, I should get that. that. Yeah, but no, no, I thought uh, comprehensive and thorough. Very good. So the book is Civil Wars and Reconstructions in the Americans, United States, Mexico, and Argentina by Evan Rathera from LSU Press. I encourage you to, to pick it up. I promise you, you will see the war in a different perspective. So Evan, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you. I'm sorry. You're welcome. And thank you for agreeing to do this. <laughs> My privilege. We'll see you folks online and on the battlefield. Thanks again to Evan for joining us. I'm Chris Mikowski. Thanks to our engineer, Jackson Mikowski, for piecing our pieces together. Also, thanks to the Second South Carolina String Band for providing our theme music. You can find them online at civilwarband.com. And don't forget to join us online at emergingcivilwar.com. More than 30 of us contributing free content every day to the blog. We've got books. We've got symposia. We've got all kinds of awesome stuff going on. And you can find out and be part of that conversation at emergingcivilwar.com. And finally... If you like what you hear, don't forget to hit that like button. Please subscribe, please share, get your friends involved here at the Emerging Civil War Podcast. For Evan Rathera, I'm Chris Mikowski. Thanks so much for being with us. We'll see you online and on the battlefield.